page 24 in your pew Bibles, Genesis 32, 3 to 33, 3. Verse 3. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and now he is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all others who followed the herds. You are to say the same same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is behind us, is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gift went ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. Verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford at Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. 
So Jacob called the place Peniel and said, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Chapter 33. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. May God bless the reading of his word. Morning, everyone. Good to see all of you this morning. Uh, Pastor Chuck and Irene are out of town this weekend. Um, Fortunately, they were able to fly out. Um, Their oldest son is actually going to be ordained, I think, today in the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination. And so they went to uh, attend the ordination ceremony. So we're very happy to see Ben getting ordained. Uh, As such, I have the opportunity to share with you this morning. I just want to share that, you know, the more and more time I spend with all of you, getting to know all of you, it just amazes me how everyone in the congregation is just so gifted and, and intelligent. Um, you're all very well-read. You're all very well-thought-out. Um, when I visit different small groups, it amazes me just how many different topics you guys can talk about. To give you an example, in my small group last Friday night, uh, part of our discussion spiraled into things like ancient Near Eastern religions, chemical reactions, Platonian philosophy. Um, to be honest, I was getting a little tired. Uh, <laughs> but um, And I felt like I was watching an episode of Jeopardy, you know, and, and these were all the categories in and, and the, and the, and Jeopardy. Um, and in other contexts, I mean, I just see when you guys talk and interact, I mean, you're you face these problems, you, you talk about math problems, and, and you can do them with ease. I mean, you guys, um, to give you an example, can this works? Nope. Yep. You guys can, like, do mazes like this, but really for me, this is my type of maze. You turn to the next one. This is... That's my type of maze. And I know you guys enjoy like doing challenging puzzles like the next one, uh, where you kind of have to look and study and find all the animals. Um, but really, the one at my level is the next one after that, where you can have to find the elephant. And I, I'm really glad. I mean, I think our church is so blessed because all of you have these gifts. You have all these resources and I think these gifts oftentimes work to your advantage. But I think at other times, having such skills, having such intelligence can be a disadvantage because it prevents one from turn, turning towards God. And we're going to see that this morning as we take a break. Uh, you know, we started earlier this month in our New Testament survey series um, that Pastor Chuck started, but we're going to take a break this week to jump back into the Old Testament in the first book. And in the account of Jacob and Esau, we're going to see that in God's redemption plan, God chooses to use very flawed people to help complete it. But he also seeks to transform them in the process. 
He chooses to use very flawed people to help fulfill his redemption plan, but he chooses to transform them in the process. Near my house, uh, there's a mixed martial arts uh, studio, and, and to tell you uh, the truth, I'm not really into MMA. I think it's just like too violent, and it's just human cockfighting. Um, but there was this phrase in the window that stuck with me. And if, uh, Derek, if you can change the slide. Uh, I don't know if you can see it, but in the left upper left corner of the window, there's this term called submission wrestling. Submission wrestling. And I think there was, and I saw it and I said, wow, that's a really cool term. Because I thought it amply describes what we're going to see today as Jacob goes through this transformation process. Um, to back up a bit for those of you who attend regularly, hopefully you'll remember from our Old Testament survey series last year that the beginning of God's redemption plan was laid out in the book of Genesis, beginning with Abraham, right? There were three things that God promised Abraham as part of this plan. The first was many descendants, right? The second one, do you remember, was land, right? And the third was blessing to the nations, correct. Good, good memory. See, you guys are intelligent. So as the grandson of Abraham, Jacob was a direct part of this plan. But I've also, but excuse me, I've often wrestled with, and no pun intended, with why he was chosen. Because those who may be more familiar with Jacob know that, you know, this wasn't the most upstanding citizen. Beginning at the time of conception, he was fighting inside the womb with his twin brother Esau. He was named Jacob because he was born grabbing the heel of his brother Esau. And since the time of birth, he's been grabbing and, you know, things ever since to, to get what he could, to get ahead. I mean, this guy, to me, could make someone like Bernie Madoff look like an amateur. There's this account in Genesis when he had been taking care of his father-in-law's livestock, and the father-in-law made a deal with Jacob to give him some of the livestock. But through some scheming, his father-in-law Laban tried to kind of cheat him out of some of the livestock. But Jacob, in turn, came up with an even more cunning plan, and basically he plundered his whole father-in-law's livestock and took all his, you know, sheep and goats, and hardly left any for Laban. So, so this guy was like just, just this master schemer, this master deceiver. And so now in our passage, you're going to see Jacob preparing to reunite with his brother Esau. It's been 20 years since he's seen his brother, and their last meeting didn't go too well. Uh, back then, Jacob, true to his character, cheated Esau out of his father's blessing, even after previously getting his brother's birthright. And so in a fit of anger, Esau plots to kill Jacob, which causes Jacob to flee for his life. And so now Jacob is preparing to return home after these 20 years under instruction from God. And he has no idea if any, if, well, of how much or if anything has changed. And in our text, we're going to see much of Jacob's flaws come out as he prepares to meet Esau. But we'll also see the process by which God seeks to change him. So let's get into our text this morning. If you have your Bibles open to Genesis 32, we'll start once again at the beginning in verse 3. So uh, Genesis 32, verses 3 to 5 says this. It says, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob... 
says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, and male and female servants. And I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. So from these first couple of verses, we see that Jacob continues to plot and scheme. And the first intention we see in Jacob is to use persuasive speech. Persuasive speech to try to pacify his brother. By saying the things he did, he's basically conveying three things to Esau. And if you could flip to the next thing. The three things he's trying to do is this. First he says, I've been staying with Laban, who is their uncle, and remained there till now. So he's saying, I've not been hiding, I've not been sneaking around, I've not been doing anything to try to you know, sneak behind your back. I've been with Laban this whole time. The second thing he says, I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats and so on. What he's trying to convey to Esau is, I have plenty. I'm not coming to try to take anything from you. I'm not going to steal anything from you. I have more than I need. And finally, he says, I'm sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor. So the third thing he's trying to convey to Esau is, you know, hey, you know, can we kind of forget about the past and let's be friends now and, and, and get along? And with this persuasive speech, and maybe because of, you know, past successes in the past he's had with this, you know, he thinks this smooth talking will do the trick. But he becomes, so he becomes very alarmed when his messengers come back and tell him in verse 6, we delivered your message, and now Esau is coming to meet you with 400 men. Are Esau's intentions good or bad? Jacob doesn't know. But he expects the worst, so in great fear and distress, as it says in verse 7, it causes him to do another thing which is self-serving prayer, self-serving prayer. The only other time we see Jacob praying in Scripture, if you want to even call it prayer, is found in Genesis 28, after Jacob experiences a vision God gave him. In response to this vision, Jacob says in verses 20 to 22, in chapter 28, he says, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. I mean, when you read that, it's like, I mean, is he really praying, or is he just trying to close a deal in which he's coming up with the, he comes out with the upper hand in the deal? You know, if you will do all this for me, well then, you know, you'll be my God. And I'll give you a tenth of what I have. But you have to come through for me. And now back in our chapter, he's praying again. And it doesn't sound much better. Verse 9, he says, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. Notice just in this verse that he refers to God as God of his father, God of his grandfather, but he never refers to God as his God. He also throws back the promise, this promise that God's that seems to give Jacob the other hand. You told me that you would prosper me. And then on the verses 10 through 11, he does, he does seem to demonstrate a little more humility, a little more remorse. But then in verse 12, he follows that up by once again holding something over God, demanding that he fulfill this promise that he made to Jacob. How much faith does he have in his prayer? We don't really know. But we do see that it 
all it does is just continue to cause Jacob to take matters into his own hands and continue on with clever planning. He did some of his planning before he prayed, as we saw um, in verses um, seven, or excuse me, uh, yeah, seven to eight, that um, he divided the camp, you know, all his possessions in the two camps, thinking that one could be spirit if Esau could attack the other. And then he continues his careful plotting by preparing this huge gift of livestock for Esau and dividing them into five separate herds. First goats, then sheep and rams, then camels, cows and bulls, then donkeys. Each herd was assigned a servant, and he instructed his servant, beginning in verse 17, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, Who do you belong to, and where are you going, and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are gifts sent to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second and third and the others who followed. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. So here, once again, we see that Jacob is the master planner. And by devising the scheme, you see on the screen, he accomplishes several things. First, by dividing his herds into five distinct groups and sending them a little bit behind one another, it's going to weaken Esau's military readiness if Esau did, in fact, plan to ambush or jump Jacob. Because if Esau saw the first band of animals and people coming, he would be thinking, oh, there's Jacob. But but Jacob wasn't there. And then the servant would say, oh, no, Jacob's behind me, but he gave all these animals to you. So then they would have to regroup. And the second band comes, oh, there's Jacob, but Jacob wasn't there. And Esau would have to go through this five times, and it would just wear down the military readiness of Esau. And then the second thing is with all these animals, you can imagine it's going to encumber Esau's travel, because now he not only has 400 men, but think of all these animals that he's going to get that have to follow him. And third, with all the servants bringing the gifts, these servants are now part of Esau's band, unless he kills them, which we don't think Esau would do. So they would be an obstacle once again to any swift surprise attack that Esau may have. Verse 22 to 23 also informs us that Jacob gathers his two wives, his children, and other servants, and had them and all his possessions cross the river while he stayed behind. Do you get that? Jacob had his wives and his children cross the river while he stayed behind. I mean, maybe he, was he thinking that they could be used as human shields if his other plans failed? He would send them first and he would stay back? I think, you know, through just these few verses, we can truly get a glimpse, you know, of what Jacob's character is really like. That he was this conniver, this, this schemer, this master planner. But even though Jacob implemented what he thought to him were some fail-proof plans, he's going to find out that even his best laid plans cannot stop God from intervening if God chooses to. Moving on in our passage, we can, let's look at verses 20. 4 to 29. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. 
Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? And he blessed them there. The first thing I see in God's intervention is isolation. Isolation. But God didn't directly dictate the circumstances that caused Jacob to be alone. I think this is exactly where God wanted him to be. Because Jacob is left realizing and coming to terms that, you know, with all his grand scheming, with all the smooth talking, it could fail. He's alone and he can't control the outcome. You know, maybe all this time he was good at taking care of himself, but he couldn't protect his family, his children, and even sent them out in front of him. And I believe his being alone was significant because it's oftentimes like this when God uses these moments of aloneness to get one's attention. You know, amongst the crowds, it's easy to hide from God. In the busyness of the work or school days, it's easy to avoid God. Even in our small groups, in our pods, though we as leaders don't like to see this happen, you know, if one wishes to, he or she could easily turn attention away from himself or herself and just let other people share and keep the focus on solving other people's problems. So we need these times of aloneness, though, when God really has our attention. We need to retreat from the work or school days regularly to be by ourselves and have quiet times. We need to have times where we can get away for maybe a longer period, like a personal retreat, so God can speak to us and reveal more of himself to us. So the question is, do you intentionally carve out space so you can have alone time with God? And even when you create this space, do you not only free yourself of distractions like people, but things like, you know, computers, cell phones, things like that. During your alone times with God, are they times of focus and unhurriedness? Or are they times of busyness and rush? And so I think these times of isolation need to be very important. We need to treat them with great importance because these are the times that God can really use to get our attention and speak to us. And as God is Jacob alone, he proceeds to the next step, which is initiation. Initiation. One thing I find interesting in this encounter with Jacob is that Jacob didn't start the fight. You know, verse 24 tells us that Jacob was just alone on his side of the river, then bam! You know, a man shows up out of nowhere and begins to wrestle him. Is this how we expect God to act? We're at the end of a rope, and then God comes out of nowhere and jumps us? You know, and what does it mean that Jacob is overpowering the man? You know, whether it's God himself or God's appointed person, how can anyone conceivably win a wrestling match against God? These are the things I struggled with when I was reading this passage. And it came to the realization that when we read that Jacob is overpowering the man, I don't think it's meant to be read in a physical sense. Understand that Jacob is 97 years old at this point. So can he really be a match for this person? Plus when we read that the stranger just touched his hip, and many Bible scholars say that the Hebrew term, or the Hebrew word that's used for this 
term touch refers to the merest, mildest touch, like just a slight tap. If the person could just slightly tap Jacob's hip and wrench it, I mean, consider, wouldn't he be able to inflict huge damage if he really wanted to? I mean, it'd be if, like if any of us went up against like a professionally trained MMA fighter. I mean, the fight would be over in just a few seconds. So if it's not a physical battle taking place, then what is it? I would propose that it was a spiritual battle. Initially, Jacob wasn't overpowering the man, or initially Jacob was overpowering the man because he wouldn't yield to God wanted him to do. He continued his pattern of relying on his wits, his strength, his resourcefulness. But then the turning point came when the man just tapped him on his hip and he at once was maimed. At that moment, Jacob realized he couldn't defeat this man. Once again, if this person could just maim him with the touch of his finger, how much more damage could he do if he connected like with a, you know, like a jab or a straight punch? So Jacob changes his strategy from trying to defeat the man to not letting him go. He would not release him until he received the blessing. Jacob was used to grabbing, holding on to everything he could all his life just to get ahead. But now his persistence is going to work to his advantage in this situation. And we see that the blessing that came from God came in the form of a new identity. And that's God's third change, is the identity. In a struggle with God, once again, Jacob realizes that he is actually utterly helpless and defenseless before this person. And he finally submits to God. This was God's submission wrestling. He got Jacob to realize what he needed to do, which was ultimately submit. And when Jacob gets this, God gives him this new identity. He is no, no, he is no longer Jacob, the heel grabber, you know, the charlatan, the conniver. He's not Israel, the man who wrestled with God and overcame. To further explain, theologian J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, wrote this on this passage, say, stating, The nature of Jacob's prevailing with God was simply that he held on to God while God weakened him and wrought in him the spirit of submission and self-distrust. That he had desired God's blessing so much that he clung to God through all this painful humbling, that he came low enough for God to raise him up. You see, God made Jacob part of his redemption plan. But as Jacob prepared to return home, there was baggage that couldn't accompany him, baggage that needed to be dealt with. So God doesn't leave Jacob alone. He seeks to transform him, and he does so through this, you know, what we call submission wrestling. Understand that, you know, God can't comfort a person into a transformed life. It doesn't work. Comfort mostly just causes one to remain stagnant and soft. So no, he has to wrestle Jacob into a transformed life. And I think what can be said of Jacob can also be said of us as well. For God desires to use all of us to help accomplish his plan of redemption. But he knows there's still a lot of transformation that needs to take place within each of us. So he wrestles with us in order to get us to submit. He won't overpower us, 
but there will be moments of pain as we go through the process. And like Jacob, we must follow his example in just holding on and grabbing on to God until God is able to do the work, not turning our back on God, not letting go. Was Jacob really transformed? I think we can easily see this in the rest of the passage. Verse 30. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. After the wrestling match, Jacob recognizes this act of grace he received. Jacob knows deep down inside who he is. This deceiver, the con artist, the man who swindled almost everything he got. But he was not destroyed by a holy God. Through all his sin, through all his trickery and conning of people, the only thing he walked away with was a limp. Though in reality one could call him a loser in life, God declared him a winner. And not only did he realize this gift of grace, but we see how this recognition changed his actions. Going on to chapter 33, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Did you read that last part? The man who formerly would hide behind his wife and kids, send them before him, while he cowered in the back, he now goes on in front to meet his brother ahead of his wife and kids and bows down before Esau and his 400 men, not knowing what would happen. And what Jacob received is this act of grace that causes transformation. Understand, we also receive such an act of grace. We did not bear the full weight of our sins. But God sent Jesus to this earth to suffer and die. Jesus did not escape with just a mere touch, with just a maiming. He had to bear the full weight of God's punishment for our wrongdoings, not not his own wrongdoings. And for those of us who have received this gift of grace in Jesus, God is calling us to live transformed lives. So have we fully submitted to God? Or is God still trying to wrestle with us to get us to submit? How are we doing in seeking to live holy lives, stopping sinful patterns and habits, being bearers of God's grace to the world? Think for a moment and consider, what might God be currently be wrestling with you about? Is he asking you, to submit by giving up something like pride, self-reliance, worldly distractions, a sinful habit? Or is he asking you to submit by starting to do something, such as being his witness, spending, spending more alone time with him, getting more involved in ministry or missions? You know, as I was preparing this sermon, one of the things I realized is that maybe I don't like Jacob too much because I find he's a lot like me. And I would imagine he's a lot like you, too. How often do we rely on our own resources to scheme and plan, to try to get God to do what we want him to do rather 
than submit to what he really wants to do. How many times do we seek to use our own human wit and wisdom to accomplish our plans? Sure, we say the obligatory prayer, but then we just proceed to do whatever we plan to do anyways. Maybe like Jacob, you know, we're, we're cunning enough, we're smart enough to even include reasons why God should like our plans better than his. But seeing the Jacob inside of us also gives us hope. Because when we see in our story that God chooses to use this man and make him one of the patriarchs of his redemption plan, I mean, this is the man who is now Israel. You know, the chosen, the father of the chosen people. And he transformed them in the process. You know, we understand that he can and desires to do the same for us. I mean, sure, we're not going to be the patriarch of his master plan of redemption. But I think he would choose to use us to continue to fill significant roles as we submit more and more of ourselves to him and allow him to use us for his purposes. So do you see yourself as part of God's redemption plan? Do you see the role that God might have for you to fill? And as you recognize this, continue to process what kind of submission wrestling would God like to do with you? What is the Holy Spirit like working in on you internally to submit to him, to give up something or start doing something. The submission wrestling process is not fun or, or you know, or, or always easy, but I think it's a necessary part of God's transformation process as he seeks to make us more like him and as he seeks to fulfill his redemption plan for the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus and for this gift of grace we receive. Because, Lord, when you sent your son down to earth, you didn't just choose to touch him and maim him for a little bit like Jacob. But you poured your whole wrath upon him for nothing he did, but for the sins that we did. Father, we thank you for this gift of grace, and we thank you for the grace that continues to work in us, to transform us, to do in us what we cannot do on our own. And so I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to allow you to continue to work your transformation process through us. May you continue to wrestle with us. And may we not let you go until you are able to work through us what you would desire. And as you transform us, Lord, may we be more and more usable for you. May we be more and more usable to complete this master plan of redemption that you started with Abraham and you continue on until now. We need to be part of this plan, Lord because the world depends on it. And so help us to uh, follow you and, and obey you in whatever you might ask us to do. And probably sings in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please rise and join us in responding in worship?